Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, so good morning again. Uh, we are changing directions a little bit for the next number of weeks. Uh, we have periodically over the last 12 months or so been trying to redo our membership curriculum, which instead of all the weight being borne by a class, trying to create through sermon series some material for you to work through on your own as you're becoming, you know, as you're becoming new to our church and becoming, you know, understanding what this church is really about, you can listen to it on your own, and then we come and discuss it. So we're going to be doing a number of weeks, uh, the third part of that membership series, uh, and you'll notice on the graphic behind me, what we've been doing is talking about some of the scriptures that have most shaped Redeemer and what Redeemer is and what we're seeking to be as a church. And uh, for the next number of weeks, we're going to talk about this idea of a gospel movement because we want to be a people, we've said, who are fluent in the gospel and for the city. And we believe if those two things can be true of us, that if we can be fluent in the gospel, uh, trusting in God's power in the gospel of Jesus and not our own strength, and also with our hearts toward the city, then it is possible that we could be used by God to ignite and cultivate a gospel movement of churches and ministries that renew Winter Haven in Polk County by sharing the gospel and word and deed all throughout our area. And so our topic for these next number of weeks is going to be what we mean by this idea of a gospel movement, using scriptures that are material to uh, what our church is and is trying to become. And so our text this morning is from Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read the first six verses. Really, we're going to key in on verses 5 and 6 as they describe about as clearly as anywhere in the Bible what we mean by gospel movement. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, feel free to. You can grab the, the Pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 983, but it's on the screen behind me if you're at home. Uh, you should see it on your screen as well. Let's read Paul's introductory remarks to these Christians in Colossae. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. That's all we're going to cover today. But this is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let me ask a question as we just try to gear our hearts towards this text. Have you ever gotten news that was so exciting and so sweet that you just had to share it with others? You could just not wait for the opportunity to share it with others. Uh, we found out around Thanksgiving that we were gonna be grandparents and we couldn't tell anybody for a whole month. It was terrible. And then many of you were very worried that I inadvertently let the cat out of the bag a number of weeks ago, which I did not, I had permission. But for that whole month, we were holding on to this, this wonderful news. It was so hard because it was such big news. We knew everything was gonna change. It was about to change everything in our family. It was so exciting and so fun and we wanted all the people that we love to be able to share in our joy so that our joy could become their joy and we could enjoy it together. And yet we had to keep it to ourselves, and it was agonizing in many ways. And I wonder, any similar situation for you? Have you ever had, have you ever gotten good news that was so exciting and so sweet that you just had to share it with other people? It was painful if you weren't able to. Well, 
That's kind of what we're talking about here. Tim Keller used to say, he would say, the gospel is continually breaking out. And he meant by that that the gospel, the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ is continually being shared from, because it is too big and it is too important and it is too sweet to be kept to yourself. The gospel is the power of God, Romans 1.16 says, happying the human soul with infinite joy and peace and hope in the believing of it. That cannot be contained. It has to be shared. And that sharing leads to more sharing until all of the sharing becomes something more, becomes what we call a movement. Now, Paul described it here in Colossians. You look there in verses 5 and 6 as the gospel bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in a person and in a church and then growing as people share with other people, as churches plant other churches and joining together in the work of bringing healing and reconciliation in a place like Winter Haven and then eventually from a place like this to other places until it spreads all around the world. The gospel is coming to you and then it lives in you and then it comes from you to others. And then in both you and them and then from both you and them to others until there are enough people that it begins to go to a city and then from that city into the whole, you see, you see what I'm talking about? Into the whole world. There's a chapter in Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis describes this. The chapter is actually entitled The Good Infection. And he, his argument is this, that Christianity spreads like a virus does, that good news and bad news both kind of spread the same way, that, those, that there's close contact from person to person. And that image, I know, packs a lot more punch in a post-COVID world. But I think it's true and it's helpful. We are seeking, this is part of what our church is really striving to be. We're seeking to infect our city with gospel joy and peace and hope and then watch it spread from person to person, from church to church into pastoral associations because they need it more than anybody. We do, pastors do. And from person to person into HOAs because Lord knows they need it too, right? Have you ever been to one of those things or been in charge of one of those things? Holy smokes. To kids sports associations and into school classrooms and city government buildings and the arts community and the chamber of commerce. That's what we're after. And really it's very helpful here in Colossians chapter one. And so I want you to turn your focus back to the text and let's just retrace the spread as Paul describes it here and as we can begin to imagine it in our own lives. And what we're gonna see is that you see kind of three steps. I mean, there's more here, but let's just put it in bite-sized chunks if we can. You see Paul talking about gospel grace, and then that gospel grace produces gospel fruit, but that gospel fruit doesn't just remain fruit. There's thirdly a gospel increase. So there's a gospel grace and a gospel fruit and a gospel increase that's described here. And as we work through those three things, we'll see uh, what we're talking about when we talk about a gospel movement. Okay, so first, Paul, Paul begins by describing gospel grace. Paul wrote about the gospel bearing fruit and growing among the Christians in Colossae. Verse 6, look there. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. So in the previous verse, he talks about them believing the gospel. Here he talks about the gospel being grace. So the gospel is the grace of God. The good news of Christianity is that there's grace. Christianity is the good news that God's love is not reserved for the most deserving. <laughs> 
There are no wages with God. You do not perform for God's love. His love is contrary to merit. He doesn't love you more when you're good or less when you're bad. In fact, he loves you best when you're at your very worst. That's the truth. Uh, she's not here, so I can talk about her a little bit this morning, but I bought my, Sarah, my daughter Sarah an Apple Watch when she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes um, late last year uh, in October or so, so she can monitor her blood sugar on it. It's really helpful. Well, we went to a friend's cabin about six weeks after I bought that watch in North Carolina in December, and she accidentally left it there, but she didn't tell me until the middle of the church service last week when she and Ashley were whispering in church about this conspiracy that was happening, and I was trying to figure out, and I realized that it was because uh, our friends had found it in their cabin and were bringing it home later that day. And I was like, in the middle of church, we're having this conversation. Why didn't you tell me about this? Because I knew you would be mad, and you'd be yelling at me like you are right now in the middle of church. I'm not yelling at you. I'm just, I don't understand. And this is the conversation that was happening right there. This is the kind of things you do in church, right? But I just couldn't get over the fact that she didn't tell me because she was afraid that I would have been mad at her. Now, to be fair, I probably would have been mad at her. (laughs) You know, it's an expensive thing. She should have been more careful. But my love for her wasn't at stake. And it's interesting, no matter how many times I've told her throughout her whole life, I love you no matter what. A part of her still doesn't believe it. She still believes she has to earn my love. She still believes she has to ward off my disappointment and frustration with her by always doing it right. So instead of saying, hey, dad, you know, on the trip home, maybe. Hey, dad, you know what? I'm so sorry. I, uh, I left my watch in North Carolina. Do you think we could call somebody and see if they could find it and send it to us? She decided just to not tell me for months and to live without it and hope that I never found out. Uh, Richard Lovelace, who trained Tim Keller, he said that most church people know enough about grace to be able to repeat a few catchwords and phrases, but they have what he called very little deep awareness that they are deeply loved by God, freely, without condition. They believe that their standing with God is dependent upon a past conversion experience of some kind or their present moral performance, not Christ. And that's a problem because their conscience in the middle of that wrestling isn't satisfied. So even as they're striving and doing everything they can and always trying to do more and more and more because nothing ever seems to be enough, there is at the same time this developing powerful underlying insecurity in their life that settles into despair and self-rejection. And it leaves them, religious people, Sometimes the most religious people, it leaves them without deep reservoirs of joy and peace that grace actually creates. And as a result, they experience very little spiritual power in their lives. Like my daughter, a lot of people who go to church, and actually the more you've been in church, the more temptation it is for you. A lot of people are motivated merely by staying out of trouble. There's no real love or gratitude. There's no confidence that the mercies of God are more than their mistakes. And this actually is the thing that keeps people from growing spiritually. Because, because, and here was Lovelace's quote that really landed on me this week that I just had to like stop and say, wow. He said, you know, the problem is, is that their inner lives, their, the way they think and feel about themselves, their inner motivational drives in their lives, their inner lives 
are never fully subjected to the authority of Christ. And that's a big problem. Because sin is not just a matter of external behavior, according to Christianity. There are submerged, again, Lovelace's words, there are submerged continents of pride and covetousness and hostility towards God and others that are the real source of spiritual stuckness that never get dealt with in most people. But the gospel is the power of God, not just for a change in your behavior, but for a change on the deepest levels of your life. In all of that stuff I'm trying to describe. See, we have this default setting towards performatism. We automatically gravitate towards the assumption that we are accepted and loved by God because of the works that we do for him. And our confidence and our hope and our joy are the result of either our feelings or our recent achievements or our failures. And that, see, that's just religion, though. That's not Christianity. And there are a lot of people who think that they're Christians who are, in fact, merely religious. Christianity, though, Christianity is grace. It is the good news that God's love is not earned, that it is given as a gift on the basis of what Christ has done. So a Christian is actually a person whose confidence and joy and hope all come from what God has promised and not how they feel. They are actively, deeply, consciously relying on the record of Christ's work, on Jesus's life and death and resurrection and not their own failures or successes. And that is what it means when Paul describes here to come to understand the grace of God in truth. You see that phrase again? Look there. Which, um, verse 6, the gospel bearing fruit and increasing as it has done among you since the day you heard it. And you see that word understood the grace of God in truth. Now that word understood there is a really fascinating word, okay? And you have to forgive me because I did do languages in seminary and so I'm often fascinated by uh, the way the Greek really kind of gets translated into the English. But the word there is really interesting. It is a word epigenosko. And the word gnosko is the Greek word for knowledge or understanding. The prefix epi is added to it. So it's meant by Paul to be something like it's an epi-knowing. Not just a knowing, it's an epi-knowing. It's a knowing, Paul says, that goes beyond just knowing. It's an understanding of the truths of the gospel and the truths of God's grace that is more than just information that rolls around in your brain. It's something that kind of gets from the brain to the heart and starts to really impact and affect the way the things are rolling around in the middle of your life something more than information. To know fully is a way to translate it. To know thoroughly. So the Puritan Thomas Goodwin referred to it as a light beyond the ordinary light of faith. It is a knowing that, using his words, overpowers a person's soul, assuring him deeply that he is God's and God is his and that God's love for him is from everlasting to everlasting. And I've used the illustration that, that Goodwin uses, but he talks about a father and a son that are walking down the sidewalk together, hand in hand, enjoying a beautiful day like today with one another. But then in the course of them walking along, the father bends down to sweep the little boy up into his arms to hug and kiss him and whisper in his ear that he loves him. And then as they go along, he hugs the boy, brings him close to his chest, sits him back down and stands him back on his feet and then they continue to walk along. And Goodwin asked, he said, is the little boy more 
a son in the father's embrace than he is when he's walking side by side with him? How would you answer that question? Is he more a son? Let me give you the right answer. No. No. He's not any more a son when he's being held by his father in his arms than he is when he's walking hand in hand beside his father. But at the same time, there is a difference, isn't there? He's experiencing his sonship differently. He's experiencing the love of the father more powerfully, more directly, more thoroughly. And that's that word here. That's that word that Paul's talking about. It's one thing to know the grace of God. It's another thing to epi-know the grace of God. See? It's not enough just to know the truth. You have to have an experience of the grace of God in truth. To have your soul overwhelmed and overpowered and overcome by the reality of God's love and grace to you. That's what Paul is saying, and that is where this whole idea of a gospel movement starts, is when a people begin to have the love of God sit on their soul like that. But second, that kind of knowing then begins to produce gospel fruit. Let's keep going. Let's back up a bit, actually, in the passage, and listen to the way Paul describes the lives of these Colossians. He says, we thank God, verses 3, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Okay, three words there. I just want you to single out. Faith, hope, love. Do you see that? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And if you know the Bible, you know that these three are often grouped together in many different places in the scriptures. Faith, hope, and love. That's the gospel fruit. And, and they are uh, called in classical literature the theological virtues. And they're referred to as the theological virtues by, by um, Aristotle and others because they are understood to be supernatural. In other words, there are certain qualities and characteristics that you can have merely by temperament or personality. But these, faith, hope, and love that Paul is describing here are supernatural fruits of the epi-knowing of God's grace that can come into a person's life. And so let me say it a little bit differently, though. When Paul says that the gospel here, verse 6, is bearing fruit, he means that the gospel, as the power of God in a person's life, begins to produce a fertile environment for future growth and expansion in that person and beyond that person. And that word there refers to a well-watered and maintained field that is ready to explode with a crop uh, that, you know, the person working that field is expecting. Now, I've lived here my whole life, and one of my favorite things to see is an orange grove where the trees are full and green and stretching as far as the eye can see. They used to be everywhere years ago. But now most of the, of the groves, as you're driving by, if there are even groves, and I mean, it used to be almost in the middle of town you would see groves like this. Now you got to get out a ways, but even then, most of the groves, the trees are still producing some fruit, but in most cases, because of greening and other things, the trees are diseased and bare, and in a lot of groves, they're dead and just waiting for a developer to come along and build houses on top of them, and it's so sad to me. It's so sad. And it was the image that came to my mind when you read here how faith, hope, and love are the environment for a fertile life spiritually. They're the environment for spiritual health in a person's life. 
where the gospel can grow in you and then grow beyond you, can grow from you into the lives of other people, whether it be your kids, your marriage, whatever the case might be. So let's just take a minute. I think it's worth it just to talk about each of them in turn very quickly before we move on. So first, faith. He says, verse 3, we thank God when we pray for you since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So faith is the supernatural ability to live your life looking upward to God, drawing your perspective and your strength day to day from him and not from yourself and not even from others. We are saved by grace, Paul wrote, wrote to the Ephesians. We are saved by God's doing. So faith, as Paul describes it here, is putting your confidence and trust in God, in God's promises, in his person, in his work, and living your whole life from what you know to be the truth, living from your theology and not allowing yourself to be overcome by your feelings or by the terror or the scariness of your circumstances. Faith. Faith is viewing your whole life, even viewing the way you feel inside, through the lens of what you know to be true of God and not the other way around. Supernatural ability to live your life looking upward. Second, love. We thank God, he says, when we pray for you since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And he goes on, in the love you have for all the saints. And love is the supernatural ability to live your life looking outward. So faith is looking upward. Love is looking outward towards the needs of others and not merely living for yourself, but considering what others need as more important than just taking care of yourself. Again, grace means that God loved you before you loved him. You know that, right? God loved you before you loved him. And if he loved you before you loved him, then he's probably going to put you in all kinds of situations where you have to love the other person before they love you. Does that make sense? His love inspires your love, both your love for him and also your love for others. And so to the Corinthians, Paul said that the love of Christ compels us. I love that verse. The, compels us, that his, his dying love for us is such an overwhelming good news to us that it inspires and enables our own dying love for others. That's that supernatural ability to look outward. But then hope. Third, hope. He says, we thank God when we pray for you since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And hope is the supernatural ability to live your life looking forward. So faith is looking upward. Love is looking outward. Hope is looking forward. It's interesting. Where, so where are we not looking? Not inward. Yeah, not, I mean, you can think of some other things. But hope is looking forward towards the ultimate future. That God has promised. It is a confidence and a certainty about the future that God is making real, so real. It's so real to you. It's so unflappable that it begins to affect the way you live today. You have more courage, more perspective, less anxiety and discouragement in the moment, in the day, because of how certain you are about the future that is coming. One of Screwtape's letters from C.S. Lewis's famous book describes how God wants humans to attend either to eternity or to the present, either to eternity or to the present, because it is so detrimental to the schemes of hell. And so the devil's there, they're scheming, and they coming up, and the counter strategy that they arrive at is, and this is in, in the words of, of one of the, the devils there, is to keep us obsessing either about the past or the immediate future. So see, God wants us to think about the present or eternity. Evil wants us to be obsessing about the past or like just the day after tomorrow or tomorrow. And here's Screwtape's words. He says, we want a man 
had written by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon the earth, perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest nor kind nor happy now. Hope focuses on the ultimate future. And the more heaven comes into view for you, the more honest and kind and happy you will be now. So grace means that your life is not being powered by your energy or character or your good decision making. Life is a gift and every day is made by God and his steadfast love commanded towards us. And if you're not making today, listen, if you're not making today, if God's love is, then his love is also what is making tomorrow. And if it's love that's making, if it's, if it's his love that's making tomorrow, then that means that he is working toward that tomorrow through and sometimes in spite of all of your moods and mistakes, which means it's a sure thing because it depends on him and not you. And that is really good news, isn't it? It's really good news. Now, here's the thing. They all go together. Faith expresses itself in love. Faith makes itself known in love. There is no faith without love. There is no love without being powered by faith. Both faith and love come from hope. Look how he says it here. Your faith and the love that you have for the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And it's so important. You have to know what the goal is and how to repent well. And you cultivate faith, which is looking up by thinking about and responding to God, not your feelings or your circumstances. You cultivate love by thinking about and responding to others, not your own wants and needs. And you think about and cultivate hope by thinking about and responding to the promise of heaven, not, not the shame or regret of your past or the worries of the present. Repentance, biblically, the word means, refers to a change of thinking, a change in your thinking. Repent and believe the gospel, Jesus says at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Repentance is aimed at wrong believing, most of all, not merely wrong behaving. In all the ways that you're still wrestling through but not fully believing the truth of God's grace and thinking that if you leave the watch at the friend's house, his love's at stake. The Bible also says this, these three remain faith, hope, and love. And there in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul begins to talk about heaven. And then when he makes that phrase there, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, he is describing the climate of heaven. Faith, hope, love is the climate of heaven, which means faith, hope, and love are the fruit of the gospel's work in your life, but they are also the climate where the gospel fruit can begin to grow and increase, not just in heaven, but in you right now. In you and then from you. And that leads to the third point as we try to finish this up this morning. There's a gospel grace and the gospel fruit that leads to the gospel increase. Look at the words again in verses 5 and 6. The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, is bearing fruit and growing. And the word there refers to a living thing, to a plant or a vine or an infant that is growing and maturing and getting bigger and becoming greater, something more than what it currently is. Now, it's an important word in the book of Acts, too, and we're reading through Acts, so I thought I would refer to that for you so that you can be thinking about it as you're reading. The repetition of, of the word, actually, in Acts is a literary device that drives the narrative forward throughout the book, and so we just read this past Friday in Acts chapter 6. 
verse 7, uh, where, where Luke reports this. He says, the word of God continued to increase. Maybe you remember that. The word of God continued to increase. Same word. Same word as when Paul describes the gospel bearing fruit and growing or increasing here. And it's an, and it's an important word. Uh, the book of Acts is the chronicle of the early Christian movement. And it was a movement. Because it started as this small thing, just a handful of people barricaded behind closed doors, terrified of the religious leaders and the Romans, and then it grew. 5,000 people on the day of Pentecost, and increased even more. Thousands more as the apostles preached and, and taught people, and it continued to increase from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and from there to the ends of the earth. It's really fascinating. All of that is there in that book of Acts. Acts begins at the very beginning, chapter 1, with the disciples huddled together in the upper room, confused and afraid, and it ends with Paul preaching to Caesar in Rome. Now, how did that happen? How does that happen? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? And if you're a Christian, I want to answer it, I think. If you're a Christian, if you've believed and are trusting in Jesus, then by virtue of your, of your being united to Christ in faith, you have faith, hope, and love. Every, every person who believes has some measure of all three of those things. But what we learn in the Bible is that then there are times when God chooses to work in a person's life or in a group of people all at the same time to give them more faith or to give them more hope or to give them more love, to give an increase of those things that goes beyond the normal experience that is supernatural in nature. Those, those, the ground level of faith, hope, and love gets intensified in a person's life. So, you know, just some examples. So you might, you might believe, but then you're still struggling with doubts or self-condemnation or no matter what no matter how hard you try you can't seem to settle into the fact that God loves you just the way you are that there's nothing more you have to prove and you're just wrestling through that and losing sleep and you wake up feels like a thousand pound weight on your chest of shame and worry and all these things and then all of a sudden you're just going about your life and something happens. You read the scriptures and there's a breakthrough that happens and there's all of a sudden a new depth to your faith and a, a new boldness and a new confidence with God and that weight that's been just sitting there in your chest seems to be gone and you know that he loves you. And you're sure that it, his love is everlasting, that it's true and something powerfully, see, it's been an increase. Or maybe there's a relationship that's hard and you're trying your very best to love, but you're ready to give up. It's just like, you know what? There's just been too much. I got nothing left to give. And then out of nowhere, out of nowhere, something happens. You're in church or you're with a friend and they speak a word of encouragement. And somehow it's something, there's something that happens there. And out of nowhere, you sense a renewed energy to love that person that's so difficult. And it doesn't matter how hard it is. Your heart is suddenly bursting with love where it wasn't just minutes before. See, it's an increase. Or you're scared about the future. So you're pulling back and you're full of fear and you're cowering behind closed doors the way that the disciples were there at the beginning of Acts. But then, but then something changes. You hear a sermon, you know, you read the Bible, you're praying in your, in your prayer closet and all of a sudden something begins to shift in you and you begin to be convinced that heaven is real and that Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, then it's all going to be okay. 
And if it's all going to be okay, you don't need to stay hidden behind those closed doors and you get out there. You see? It's an increase in hope. And when that kind of increase happens to you, when, when, it's, when your faith or your love or your hope or all three or a combination or whatever starts to get intensified in you, that's, that's the moment when it begins to happen in you is the moment when it begins to happen from you into the lives of others. And when it happens to a bunch of people all at the same time, when a bunch of people start to get an increase of faith, they start to catch an infection. They start to feed off of one another. There's an increase of love, supernatural love or supernatural hope among a people. Well, that's what we mean when we talk about revival. Now, I want to say a bit about that, but first, it says in Acts 6, the word of God increased. It says the same thing later in Acts 19. Listen to this, Acts 19, 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Even here in Colossians, it is the gospel itself that is growing, not the church. Did you hear that? It's the gospel itself that's growing, not the church. The effect was the movement. The cause was the gospel advancing. The movement was the fruit. The power was the gospel being shared through the preaching ministry of the apostles and from house to house and then person to person. As the word increased, the movement increased. But it's the word that was increasing. Throughout Acts, you're going to read it. The word of God increased and began to prevail mightily. That's, that's what we're after. So that's what we mean by movement. By gospel movement, we mean the word of God increasing and prevailing mightily. Among us, in our city, in our area, and all of those things. But let's just finish with this. What's the takeaway? And if you look there in your outline, I've, I've given you a takeaway. I've just said, if you, would, if you would apply this to your life, here's how I would encourage you to do that today. And that is just this, that you would begin to pray for revival. The book of Acts is the church in revival. In a sense, it is something absolutely unique, but in another sense, it is something that we should always be asking God to do again among us in our day. There's a temptation, and I say this because we're, we're in Acts right now as a church. We're reading together through it. And the temptation is to read the book of Acts and then to think about all the things that are wrong with Christianity today because it's so different from what you read there. You know what I'm saying? Let me try to shift your thinking and say this. We should read the book of Acts to learn what's possible in the church today. If the Spirit would come down again, like he did there in Acts chapter 2, and birth something like that among this people or some other people somewhere else. You see, you can grow a church by having the best music and the best preaching and the best children's youth programs. I just want to say to you, we're not interested in that. We want to see revival. And as cultural Christianity dies, it's going to take revival. It is time for another revival. You with me? I mean, it really is in our nation. And Acts 4.31 is actually a wonderful summary statement of what I mean by that. I, I, we, we read it, didn't we, earlier in the service? As a, as a reading of the law, it's interesting that we chose it that way. But, that, but if you look back there at Acts 31, it's wonderful, wonderful summary statement. Here's what it says. All the elements are there. And so if you would make, here's what I would ask you to do. Would you make a prayer card and just pray Acts 41, Acts 4.31? Just pray it. Here's what it says. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's it. They were praying. That's where it starts. As their prayers went up, 
the Spirit came down, and the place where they were gathered was shaken. And when the Spirit came down, the gospel got in, and they were filled with the Spirit. And there was a new boldness and a new power. And when the gospel got in, the word began to go out as the people went out. And they continued to speak the word of God, and the lost were converted, and the church grew. Thousands and thousands every day sparked a movement. Now, here's what I would ask you to do. Pray for that same kind of thing to happen among us. Pray that our prayers would go up, that we would be a praying church. Pray that the Spirit would come down and shake this room as we gather on Sundays together. Pray that the gospel would get in with new power and new boldness and pray that the word would go out and bear fruit and increase in us and from us and in our city and our area and the whole in the whole world pray pray because you can't schedule a revival pray because you can't manufacture it it's clear from history that times of revival began when people who had been relying on themselves suddenly came to the realization that they can't do it on their own, and then they, they fling themselves on the grace of God. That's when it starts. And so listen to the words of Anne Steele, kind of a famous hymn writer. In a hymn, she titled The Necessity of Renewing Grace. She said this, How helpless, guilty nature lies, unconscious of its load. The heart, unchanged, can never rise to happiness in God. The will perverse, the passions blind, in paths of ruin stray. Reason debased can never find the safe, the narrow way. Can aught beneath a power divine the stubborn will subdue? Tis thine, almighty Savior, thine to form the heart anew. Tis thine the passions to recall and upwards bid them rise and make the scales of error fall from reason's darkened eyes to chase the shades of death away and bid the sinner live. A beam of heaven, a vital ray, tis thine alone to give. To change these wretched hearts of ours and give them life divine, then shall our passion and our powers, almighty Lord, be thine. Amen? Would you pray with me? So, Father, we, we say here we are, Lord, completely powerless and helpless as guilty nature lies, unconscious of the load, hearts that too often remain unchanged, that can never seem to find the kind of happiness and peace and hope that is found only in you because our wills are perverse and our passions are blind, our reason is debased, and will remain that way unless you come in your power and in your grace to subdue our stubborn wills, to form our hearts anew, to renew our passions, make the scales of error fall from our darkened eyes with a beam of heaven, with what she calls a vital ray. And yet we know that we cannot demand it. We cannot manufacture it. It is something that you must do. And so here we are in this quiet moment, Lord, before you to say, there is strength that we need that does not come from us. And yet you and your sovereignty must give it. There is hope we need. There is love we need. There is faith we need. And yet these are all gifts of your hand and we cannot demand them of you. But we ask as we sit in this moment to say, Lord, here we are with open hands. We desperately need for you to work. We desperately need for the, for the wind of the Spirit to blow across our lives. Here we've set our sails. 
but it is dead calm until you begin to blow. Blow the wind of the Spirit over us. And so here we are. Lord, would you begin to do that and begin this great work in us, and then may it be a work that goes from us into the city and into the world that you might be glorified yet again. Revive your church. Revive your people. Bring revival, Lord, we pray. We desperately need it, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to Jesus' words from Luke chapter 11. He says, ask and it shall be given to you. He says this, he says, For if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen? So ask him for the Spirit. It said, that song says, show me, fill me, lead me. That is the Christian life, right? Show me, fill me, lead me. That is the work that he's called us to do. But as you go now to do that work, don't forget the promise of this benediction. That if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God's face is turned towards you. Uh, He is a father who is longing for you to just ask. And he's promised, I will give you what you need if you ask. He is ready and willing to give the spirit, to give the kingdom. All the resources uh, of his kingdom at your disposal. And so receive this word of blessing as you leave today to go and do that work. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Before you go, remember, we're going to have a congregational meeting for a few minutes in about five minutes. So go get your kids and come back, and we'll see you in a few minutes. God bless you. Go in his peace.